If I believe health care is a right as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. If you believe health care is a right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Gonna change your mind on that, I too? I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, Mr. Biden. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, on WPRR. In New Orleans, on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Oh, we'll be talking about you, New Hampshire. Uh, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, on KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, just to name a few. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. This just in. Media urged not to release names of any more presidential candidates in effort to prevent copycats. Which I think is a fantastic idea. Uh, of course, that's from The Onion. It's yes. not really true. <laughs> I might wish it was true, but it... Uh, anyway... But uh, as usual, The Onion has their finger on the pulse of yes, America. <laughs> nailed it. Uh, at least, you know, at, at least it might... Let's. How about this? How about a moratorium on presidential candidates who don't actually seem to know what their own opinions are, what their own positions are, when announcing that they're running for president? Can that be the line that we now draw, at least... Yes, we are talking to you, Joe Biden. Former Vice President Joe Biden changed his official stance on the use of federal funds for abortions on Thursday, less than 24 hours after affirming the opposite position. According to video of his speech at a Democratic gala in Atlanta on Thursday evening, Biden said he would no longer support the Hyde Amendment, which bans the use of federal Medicaid funds for abortions. Just hours previously, Biden had reiterated his support for the Hyde Amendment, only to reverse course on Thursday night after he was castigated by reproductive rights groups and many of his 2020 challengers. I can't justify leaving millions of women without access to the care they need and the ability to to exercise their constitutionally protected right. 
If I believe health care is a right as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. Good. Biden said he decided to flip-flop on his past belief in light of the Republican-led attacks on women's health care that were happening in Republican-controlled states across the country. He had been slammed for his support of the Hyde Amendment of 1976, which, uh, and by the way, uh, I'm reading from TPM here, they ha- they call it the Hyde Amendment of 1076. I know it's been around for a while, <laughs> and so a has <laughs> Joe Biden, but I think they got that wrong. Uh, it, of course, disproportionately harms poor and minority communities, barring the uh, federal funds for abortions in all cases except rape, incest, or when the mother's life is in danger. So here's the thing. Well, actually, two things. One... This reveals uh, Biden to be a bit of a political opportunist, if you will, going whichever way the political winds blow. Is that fair? Yeah, kind of like a weather vane. There you go. On the other hand, it also reveals that Democrats, at least, can be persuaded. They can be moved by uh, we the people to at least come to the right position eventually, which is something that Donald Trump, for example, will never do. I'm I'm noting that uh, point in the event that Biden somehow does actually become the eventual Democratic nominee. That's a long way off, but he's currently seen as the front runner in the polls. But, uh, you know, for example, those who thought somehow that because Hillary Clinton was not perfectly aligned with all of their beliefs that somehow Trump would be better. Well, I am just hoping That is a mistake that progressives do not make again in 2020, no matter who is the nominee, because I really don't know if this nation or this planet can survive another four years of Donald Trump at this point. Well, especially the planet part. I mean, as I've said before, whoever gets elected in 2020, not just as president, but at all other levels of government, will help determine the fate of the world. Yeah, well, you said that in 2016 and... yeah. Who listened to you? Every single election from here on out determines what happens to all life on Earth. That, of course, is Desi Doyen, (laughs) uh, climate alarmist. Desi Doyen, isn't that what they call you? Yeah, Uh, then they should, uh, because I'm alarmed. You should be. We all should be. Yeah. Uh, That is not the only place where grassroots activists have been effective, by the way, in pushing Joe Biden. He also took the no fossil fuel money pledge this week. Speaking of the climate, to swear off donations above $200 from fossil fuel industry executives. So that's good. But while it applies to that pledge to take no fossil fuel money applies to his own campaign, presuming he does not break the pledge, presuming he doesn't change his mind on that, too. It does not necessarily apply to his political action committee that he is affiliated with or to Super PACs that he's not affiliated with at all who are supporting his candidacy. Also, it is only a pledge. It is not a law as Beto O'Rourke, who also took the pledge during his Senate run last year, as he proved when he was caught breaking that pledge by, yes, taking fossil fuel money in uh, oil and gas rich Texas. So, yes, what we uh, still really need is an actual law, or actually, better yet, because of the Citizens United ruling by the Supreme Court nine years ago, what we need is an actual constitutional amendment 
to keep corporate money of all types out of politics. So on that front, we've got a bit, a small bit, but we'll take it where we can get it these days. A small bit of good news today that we will be joined by public citizens, a Kane free child to discuss shortly today. So. You can look forward to that, if nothing else. But speaking of the fossil fuel industry and its pals in the auto industry, Desi Doyen, you're going to have to help me out on this one. Um, The (laughs) world's largest automakers, according to The New York Times, uh, warned President Trump on Thursday that one of his most sweeping deregulatory efforts, his plan to weaken tailpipe pollution standards, threatens to cut their profits, the automakers' profits, and produce, quote, untenable instability in a crucial manufacturing sector. In a letter signed by 17 companies, including Ford, General Motors, Toyota, Volvo, the automakers asked Donald Trump to go back to the negotiating table on his planned rollback of one of President Barack Obama's signature policies to fight climate change. So, wait, what? I thought the car makers, and here's where you need to help me, Daz, I, I thought that the car makers were the ones asking for the rollback of emission standards and mileage requirements on their cars in the first place, but now they're asking Trump to undo changes that his administration is making to those uh, to those regulations. Now, I before you answer, I admit I was watching my St. Louis Blues uh, last night take the lead in a Stanley Cup playoff final for the first time in the franchise's nearly 50-year history. So I have been a little distracted and deeply confused by all of these things, including the St. Louis Blues having a lead in a Stanley Cup final uh, uh, series. Hey, you know, first time for everything. Yeah. uh, Yes, it is. Uh, So I've been a little confused for the last 12 hours, so I'm going to need to lean on you here more than than even usual, Desi Doyne. So what is going on here? I don't understand. Okay, so this is a case of be careful what you ask for, be careful what you wish for. Um, The car makers actually created this problem that they are in right now. They actually asked the Trump administration to make those changes, to make some changes to the pollution standards that the Obama administration had established. Those were, by the way, the first to actually tighten the mileage standards and the tailpipe pollution standards, which we didn't have before because the car makers had fought them. So these are emission standards, in other words, the the pollution that comes out of the uh, the tailpipes, and uh, carbon like, emissions uh, Volkswagen too. got caught uh, hiding uh, secretly with their software, right? But theirs was also on a pollution issue with nitrous oxide, things ah. that create smog that kill people. Um, this is also regarding emission standards for carbon emissions to fight climate change as well. So there was that, and then just mileage, which I think everyone understands was he was uh, Obama his fuel economy. Economy standards, Stand, well, the right. fuel economy standards. He had lifted it so that it would be 54 and a half miles per gallon would be required by 2025. Uh, the uh, current standards are at uh, 37 miles per gallon for cars, yeah. and that's a an average. That's it's not what average. every car has to do fleet-wide, and those were supposed to take place after 2020, so we're talking about standards that would start rolling out in 2025, and that's because automakers need some lead time to design and retool factories. So the automakers wanted the Trump administration to roll back the Obama standards. Trump said, okay, we'll roll back the standards.
standards, and now the auto industry is in there saying, please don't roll back the standards? You did it too much. We just wanted a little bit. He, they asked for an inch, and Trump is taking a mile. And there is a reason for that, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so just to be clear, we have to establish one thing. California has a special authority to set its own rules for tailpipe emissions and mm-hmm. pollution because of air pollution. That's been granted for decades now. So the problem with this is that car makers are afraid of having two different markets, one for California and all of the other states who have followed California's lead in requiring these high mileage standards versus everybody else, like, say, Utah, who kind of doesn't care. And the automakers don't want to have to sell two different kinds of cars or be under two different kinds of regulatory regimes. Well, I have a question. Uh, If they're worried about that, why don't they just build all of their cars to one regulatory regime, the California regime, the higher standards? They don't have to get uh, the the Trump administration's permission to uh, build their cars to a higher standard, do they? I mean, I think the American people would appreciate a car that gets more miles per gallon. Well, of course Americans would appreciate that because Americans have to pay for the gas that goes into these gas guzzlers. Right, so but why don't they make them all uh, to the California standards? Because it's expensive. It cuts into their profits. SUVs are something that Americans really, really like, and those SUVs will be much harder to get to fit in under these new mileage standards than uh, than the automakers wish to invest in research and development to make happen. So, you know, so the way it would work, for example, is that if Trump's uh, rollbacks go through as planned. Mm -hmm. Automakers, for example, might have to demonstrate that the average miles of all the cars sold in California is higher than the cars sold in states like Utah. And that would be a problem because they might have to, say, cut their prices on electric vehicles in those high mileage states. Oh, that's good. And raise the prices on their SUVs. Because those are gas guzzlers, right. but those they make a huge profit on every single SUV that they don't make the same margin of profit on an electric vehicle. So they want to sell more SUVs, and they're basically trying to race the red light so that they can sell and make as much profit as possible on these SUVs before they are forced to stop polluting quite so much. And then they're worried that, oh, well, people will go across state lines if we're here in California, and if right. the, an SUV is too expensive here in California, we can just go across uh, the line to Arizona. Except except that also affects the car makers. They have to deal with that, at least as I understand it. I mean, according to the New York Times, that's a regulatory headache for the car makers. They are the ones that have to account for their property coming from one state and going to another. There's all kinds of of, uh, uh, very complex regulations, interstate regulations that govern that, that they don't want to have that headache to have to deal with as well. So they sent a letter apparently also at the same time they sent one to Donald Trump and they sent one to uh, Governor Gavin Newsom out here in California and said, hey, please find a middle ground. Please work with the White House. Please come up with something in between the (laughs) current California standards and what Donald Trump wants to roll it back to. But as it turns out, if I understand this correctly, uh, the Trump administration was speaking with California, but they... (laughs) And this is just so Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Apparently they walked out of the negotiations in February and they haven't looked back. 
Right. They walked out. They have no interest or desire in California maintaining its authority. And uh, Governor Newsom, our new Democratic governor in California, said, nope, sorry, pollution is bad for our people. We're going to fight it. Climate change is bad for our people. We're not going to roll back and go backwards. So the reason why the Trump administration is not negotiating any further with California is because the Trump administration wants to cancel California's special authority to set its own mileage standards. That is what the Trump administration is doing on behalf of the climate change denial industry mm. and the oil industry. So they want to take that law, right. that agreement to court to their stolen U.S. Supreme Court and see if they can overturn that whole thing. Right. So that California no longer has the authority that it's a federal, it's a big government federal thing Well, and also, because they hate states' rights, apparently. <laughs> yes, I, I they mean, want us all to die from pollution and spend more money on filling our cars with gasoline. And that's actually what's going on. Well, but it's, it's also, I mean, really, it is a state's rights issue. If California wants to have higher uh, standards for what can be sold in its state, we always hear from Republicans about states' rights, states' rights, small government, they know better, let's listen to the states. Well, here we have a state of California who is saying, these are the standards that we want for cars that are sold in our state, period. And you've got Republicans now who are opposing that idea. Well, as we've talked about many times before, Republicans are for states' rights until the oil industry wants them. So you have rights, you have property rights until the oil industry wants your property. So that's where we are. There is actually, back in December, the New York Times uh, actually uncovered with documents yep. finding that the oil industry ran a covert campaign to get the Trump administration to roll back those car emissions rules. They were not working on behalf of the automakers who just basically wanted to, eh, you know, let's keep this profit thing going with these SUVs for a little bit longer. But no, the oil industry wants to cancel California's authority and wants to ensure that people buy as much gasoline as possible, obviously because that threatens their bottom line. Um, there was a whole covert industry campaign that was run on Facebook by an oil industry lobby that represented ExxonMobil, Chevron, Phillips 66, and other oil giants. They actually did a whole covert campaign. And uh, Marathon Oil, mm -hmm. uh, Marathon Petroleum, rather, was behind that. They're the country's largest refinery. And uh, they worked with these groups and a conservative policy network financed by the billionaire Charles Koch oh, I've heard to run this stealth campaign to roll back those car emission standards. In fact, they put out letters with the uh, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, mm -hmm. to write secret laws. And then they found that lawmakers in different states were copying and pasting That's those letters yeah. into their own letters to the Trump administration saying, gosh, this is just so hard. We don't want this. <laughs> and it turns out it's actually all being driven by the oil industry because, you know, uh, a not insignificant part of their entire business model is people buying their gasoline. So you're saying they were colluding. The yes. oil industry and the auto industry are colluding, and now it's uh, coming back to uh, to bite at least the auto industry, who is, uh, well, I want to say caught in the middle of this, but they're really not. This is of their own making. By the way, this just in before, uh, before airtime, Des, I don't even know if you saw it, from Washington Post, uh, the uh, Trump administration uh, says they will not be swayed by the auto industry. They are going to move ahead with their plan. Thanks for the letter, uh, suckers, but we're moving ahead with this. Of course, because so it's what the oil industry that's what wants. what they want. And by the way, you mentioned that, you know, whatever the oil industry, that they're in favor of 
you know, states' rights until the oil industry comes in, fossil fuel industry comes into place. Not just the fossil fuel industry. It is all manner of things. Oh, it yeah. is It is rights, uh, transgender rights and all of that. We've seen, you know, state after state telling smaller towns and municipalities they cannot do that. They cannot put in these protections. They don't care about small government. They don't believe that the local government knows better. Uh, it is all about protecting their uh, interests. Uh, very, very quickly before we get to a uh, break here and get to my guest, as uh, there is a, a dispute of a sort in the Democratic Party in uh, that there was a call for a debate over climate change among the presidential candidates. But the DNC is nixing that idea. Yes. So Washington State Governor Jay Inslee, who's a 2020 presidential Democratic hopeful, yeah. had asked the Democratic National Committee that's running these debates, by the way, to actually do a specific uh, debate focused on climate change. It's a good idea. They're all coming out with their climate plans. And it would be they a great all, opportunity to fantastic. spend like, you know, a, an yeah. hour or two just talking about the details of those policies. So what's the problem? DNC says no. They said, you know, climate change is going to be covered in all of the debates in some fashion. And we're really not in favor of single issue debates like that. So, because it will open up the door to a whole bunch of other single issue debates? I don't know exactly what they're going to what their underlying issue is. They basically just said that it's that climate change will be a part of it. Because, you know, if that's the problem, well, then we'd have to have single issue debates on this and that and this and that. I'm like, well, we great. do. That'd be fantastic. Yes. And we do. <laughs> Remember, we have national security oh, right. debates That's we have right. foreign policy debates right. we have you know other debates that like you know on civil rights yep. and stuff like that so we have those debates it's just the dnc really does not want to highlight the fact that there's climate change and we should be talking about what we're going to do because it's going to be an economy-wide impact to deal with climate change yeah. And maybe we should, you know, discuss what we're going to do yeah, before well, we, we try to do it. These plans that they're coming out with, you know, uh, five, two million, three million, five, I'm sorry, trillion yeah. dollar plans. Yeah, it does kind of seem like we ought to be talking about it. Um, but, you know, maybe uh, they're trying to oh, hide the it. other thing that's important about this is that they told Inslee, no, we're not going to do it. But they also said if. You go outside of our debate cycle to have your own separate climate debate with anybody else. Mm. You will be kicked out. Really? And disinvited from all future DNC wow. debates. Wow. Meow. Yeah. Tough house. All right. Well, speaking of fossil fuels, uh, a whole bunch and of, of the Democratic candidates, a whole bunch of them now, 17, in fact, yes, including Joe Biden, claim to be swearing off of fossil fuel money, sort of. But as noted, uh, pledges are not laws, and frankly, laws are not constitutional amendments, as we saw when the Supreme Court overturned campaign finance laws in their horrific Citizens United ruling in 2010, opening the door to virtually unlimited corporate money in U.S. elections. Well, we have a bit of good news on that front coming up next. With a Kane free child of public citizen, some good news out of the state of New Hampshire this week. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. 
but we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Must be hilarious. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, along with a detailed $5 trillion climate proposal to take on our worsening climate crisis this past week, former vice president turned 2020 Democratic presidential hopeful and, at least according to recent polls, current frontrunner Joe Biden announced that he would join a number of his Democratic primary opponents in becoming the 17th Democratic candidate to pledge not to knowingly accept campaign donations above $200 from PACs, lobbyists, or SEC-named executives of fossil fuel companies. As Zoya Tiersten at Grist.org notes this week, The pledge doesn't necessarily represent a huge financial sacrifice for Democratic candidates who have already promised to reject corporate PAC money. Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, for instance, had already shown an aversion to corporate cash by the time she became the first 2020 candidate to sign this particular no fossil fuel money pledge. But Biden who many perceived to be the Democratic frontrunner long before he actually entered the race, was much more likely to receive attention from big oil in the first place. Case in point, the Democratic nominee in 2008, that would be Barack Obama, received more than $1 million from oil and gas interests. So the fact that Biden agreed to take the pledge is pretty significant, according to Grist. As the current frontrunner in the polls, says David Turnbull of Oil Change USA, the group behind the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, Biden clearly would attract some big money donors. So him taking the pledge, says Turnbull, is a recognition that the power of the climate movement and the wishes of the Democratic electorate may be growing stronger than the lure of fossil fuel cash. But... Turnbull noted that Biden's announcement that he would take the pledge is no guarantee that the candidate will actually follow through with it. Former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who hails from the country's largest oil and gas producing state, took the pledge himself during his failed Senate bid last year, but was later removed from the pledge's list of signers when when an investigation uncovered that he had, in fact, been taking donations from fossil fuel executives. 
When O'Rourke announced his presidential run, the Texan initially seemed hesitant to take the pledge again, but ultimately his decision lined up with climate activists' demands, and he re-signed this May. He, al- he already uh, says that he rejects all political action committee funding. But the O'Rourke episode raises an important point. Pledges can be broken. There is no law that compels candidates to keep their vows when it comes to which corporate entity's money they will or won't accept. And it's often up to third parties to keep track of what donations they do accept. Think Progress's E.A. Crunden notes today that uh, pledges have been a common theme like this in this election cycle, with some candidates swearing off political campaign PAC money altogether and making other promises about their funding sources. The rejection of fossil fuel money has been among the more successful efforts, but its actual impact varies. Research has shown that fossil fuel companies do have a significant influence on policy, one that typically keeps climate-related issues from even getting a vote in Congress. So even slightly mitigating the access that the industry has to lawmakers, according to Leah Stokes, who's an expert on environmental policy at UC Santa Barbara, could have a major implication for passing real climate action. Still, Stokes notes that the pledge itself does not preclude donations from labor unions, which have historically taken mixed stances on climate issues. Trends show that fossil fuel interests tend to fund Republicans more so than Democrats, which is not necessarily the case for labor and their own corporate PACs, some of which have a major stake in sustaining fossil fuels, even if they have infinitely less money, according to Stokes, than the oil and gas interests. But corporate PACs, particularly since the U.S. Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling, opened the floodgates to spending by all such interests in elections, that uh, those PACs present other challenges inherent in efforts to create a firewall somehow between lawmakers and special interests. Candidates only have control over their own campaign committees while PACs operate separately and can still funnel money to candidates. That's a notable caveat for candidates like Biden. The former vice president founded the American Possibilities PAC in 2017, and its donors include, for example, former Senator John Bro, Democrat of Louisiana, who has lobbied for Shell Oil. It's unclear whether Biden has asked American Possibilities to stop taking money from fossil fuel interests. When he said he would sign the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, he only specified his own campaign committee. And super PACs, which operate independently of candidates, are also tricky. Those uh, those, uh, committees are barred from contributing directly to candidates, but they spend a whole lot of money toward attack ads and other efforts on behalf of individuals. The link between donors to super PACs and candidates remains fuzzy at best, but as candidates aren't in a position to reject those funds since they aren't directly given to them, those communities still pose an obstacle to challenging the influence of industry. Now, some candidates in the 2020 race have made their fight against corporate PACs central to their campaign, 
Montana Governor Steve Bullock, in his announcement video last month, cited the state's century-old ban against corporate money in politics following uh, that was put in place following a, a corruption scandal by oil and mineral barons a century ago, essentially when those barons bought the state capital in Montana. They're Aggressive state laws against corporate funding of elections in response was essentially overturned 100 years later by the Citizens United case. And in the Trump era, the scourge of so-called dark money has gotten even darker, with Trump's Treasury Department recently declaring that certain nonprofit PACs do not even have to disclose their own donors to the IRS, as had still been the case even after Citizens United. The IRS, by the way, already kept those disclosures confidential. Now, those disclosures don't even need to be made to them at all. Bullock filed a uh, a lawsuit against the Treasury Department fighting that new rule. Here's how he describes his efforts against corporate money and dark money in elections in his campaign announcement video. About 100 years ago, this was the richest hill on Earth. The men who owned it were called kings. With their money, they bought politicians, attacked unions, exploited workers, and left us with a toxic reminder of what happens when our democracy is put up for sale. Today we see evidence of a corrupt system all across America, a government that serves campaign money, not the people. After the Citizens United decision, a lot of folks said game over, but as Attorney General, I refuse to give up without a fight. Every single state in the union abandoned its own corporate spending regulations after Citizens United, except for one, except for Montana. Attorney General Steve Bullock has personally fought to keep Montana's elections laws the way they are. The bill is a way to prevent dark money groups from controlling an election. And if we can kick the Koch brothers out of Montana, we sure as hell could kick them out of every place in the country. That was Steve Bullock in his campaign video last month, but his attempt to sue the Treasury Department is, of course, being challenged by the administration. This week, a U.S. District Court judge heard arguments on a motion to dismiss the case against the Treasury Department and the IRS seeking to eliminate the requirements that some politically active tax-exempt social welfare organizations disclose the identities of their major donors, at least to the IRS. But on the other hand, there was some better news, perhaps out of the great state of New Hampshire this week, as the Granite State on Thursday became the 20th state in the union to call for an amendment to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court's Citizens United decision in hopes of getting money out of politics altogether and restoring elections to the people. The nonpartisan, nonprofit, good government group, Public Citizen, declared Thursday's vote, quote, brings the national movement beyond the symbolic halfway point of the 38 states needed to ratify a constitutional amendment to overturn the 2010 Supreme Court ruling which allowed unlimited money from wealthy and corporate donors to flood elections. They noted uh, happily that support from New Hampshire's Republican Governor Chris Sununu would not be necessary to ratify an amendment and added that the vote should signal to the U.S. Senate that it should vote on the For the People Act, or H.R. 1, in the U.S. House, which contains a host of democracy reforms, including a call for overturning 
Citizens United. Joining us now to make sense of all of this somehow is Akani Freechild, a public citizen where she is co-director of its Democracy is for People program, leading the group's efforts to build a broad movement to get money out of politics and ensure that everyone's vote counts, including working to overturn Citizens United. Akani Freechild, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. That is a lot to unpack, I realize. But let's start with the uh, with the vote in New Hampshire on Thursday. Uh, I know you led similar uh, successful efforts yourself for public citizen in Vermont, New Jersey, Illinois, Delaware, Washington State. We don't hear a lot about the efforts to overturn Citizens United lately it, 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 during the Trump era for some reason. It's, it seemed back in 2016, uh, since he was supposedly using his own money to run, it became less of an issue in that campaign. But that's certainly not the case anymore. Why has the issue seemingly dropped off the table of conversation here, particularly given the huge amount of money that Trump is now raking in from these huge corporate donors? I think it's going to be making a comeback, but I think uh, clearly for many folks, our entire democracy is deeply under threat under the current president, and so there's a lot of fights to be having, but we are continuing to pursue the proactive fight to overturn Citizens United, and New Hampshire is definitely a symbol of that, um, a powerful symbol of the 20th state, and it's also just you know, a, a wonderful sign of what local organizing can do because 82 towns in New Hampshire called for an amendment first. Republican majority towns, Democrat majority towns, people worked really, really hard at the grassroots level face to face with their neighbors to make this happen. And this is a testament to the power of that. Uh, but certainly, you know, this is one piece of a broad call for democracy reform that's symbolized by HR1. Um, we will expect to see HJ resolution, House, House Joint Resolution mm-hmm. 2, which is the constitutional amendment itself, move hopefully later in the year um, at coming out of the HR 1 democracy mm-hmm. reform package and, in and Congress. And what did, so what did uh, exactly did New Hampshire pass this week and I guess all of these other, these 20 states? Is there a specific constitutional amendment that they're, that they're voting to? to ratify there, or are these just votes of support for an eventual constitutional amendment, which presumably would then require all of those states to vote again on, on an actual amendment? Right. It's more the latter, because these have, these are, by their nature, symbolic. Mm-hmm. It's more important to build the pressure to do this very hard thing through Congress, right, to pass two-thirds of each House. It's more important to show that there's political support for overturning Citizens United, in our view, than it is to say, and it has to say this. Uh, because if you say specific language and another state disagrees, you create a division mm. that can then encourage Congress to dally. And as we know, uh, there's always, anytime there's a reason to dally, you can find a lot of dysfunction and, and lack of movement in our Congress. So we actually think it's a positive that this doesn't necessarily dictate um, a lot of specific language. Mm-hmm. We do think it's important um, that it call for a full overturn of the ruling. Um, but, you know, if we keep seeing these pass, we're going to be very excited, um, regardless of what the language is, because it shows that the citizen movement is alive and kicking and ready to 
March. Is there a uh, is there a consensus yet amongst the, the proponents to overturn Citizens United? Is there a consensus of the type of language that would be required in a constitutional amendment at this point? Or is that still being uh, fought out? No, I don't think there's a consensus. I think that the vast majority of groups have a general agreement around H.J. or S. 2, but mm-hmm. it's not uh, universal, to be certain. And again, I don't think that's nearly as important as making sure that this is a politically viable and energetic space. And I think everybody is committed to that. In order to pass uh, such an amendment, you mentioned uh, two-thirds in both houses. Is this an either, or does it, uh, if, it, if it is passed uh, by two-thirds in both houses, does it become an amendment, or the, does it then also need to be ratified then by uh, all of the states? Yes, then it has to go and be ratified by those 38 states, three-quarters of the states. Um, so, you know, for the, the wonderful thing is that New Hampshire just did this. So mm-hmm. if the House were to pass, through two-thirds and the Senate were to pass through two-thirds, it'd likely be some of the same people who voted yes in New Hampshire would still be in office, whereas for those states like Vermont, um, Connecticut that passes in 2011 and 2012, we need to re-energize those states even more to make sure that they follow through on the promise they made as legislators, um, as a legislature mm-hmm. in those earlier years, right after the Citizens United ruling that they want to overturn this. Uh, Kaney, when the uh, Supreme Court did rule in Citizens United, one of their arguments was that, well, transparency would somehow by itself allow the people to hold candidates accountable uh, for where their money came from. Doesn't this uh, no fossil fuel money pledge that I I, uh, discussed earlier uh, and others like it, including swearing off PAC money altogether by some of these uh, some of these candidates have done. Uh, doesn't that actually support the court's argument there that the 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 people are sort of self policing this issue? I think it's a wonderful movement, right? Um, it's an important movement symbolically, and to the extent that it's enforceable, it's really positive. It shows commitment to mm-hmm. reform. On the other hand, I think you're hinting at, at what you've. What may be obvious to folks is the more dark money there is and the more secret channels money is passing through and the less enforcement there is from the government, Mm -hmm. as we're seeing with the IRS Treasury case, um, the less we can even know where money is funneling through. And so it becomes more and more difficult for us to even tell the story of how corruption is happening. So I think it's a wonderful step, and I think there's a lot that candidates can do to forego, um, you know, corrupting corporate money and... We have to fix these laws if we're going to make that fully enforceable and even transparent to know. Yeah, I when I was when I was looking into this, when I was uh, researching this and and seeing uh, Biden's and the other their pledges, and then seeing how many ways there actually are to get around it with the PACs and the super PACs and everything else. You got to wonder how much these these uh, pledges actually mean, uh, you know, beyond their symbolic uh, worth here uh, without hard and fast laws to, you know, put this firewall up, as noted, uh, between these special interests and the candidates. And speaking of which, uh, that that challenge I mentioned by Montana governor and presidential candidate Steve Bullock, that was heard this week in federal court. Uh, specifically a motion by uh, the Treasury Department and IRS to toss out his case. Do I understand that case correctly, that it seeks to overturn this new rule that allows 
some PACs to not even disclose their donors to the IRS, which they were doing confidentially in the first place? Right. Well, I think the first piece is that they did it unilaterally without asking any anyone for input, not even the states that often rely on that data to regulate their own um, campaign finance situation and their own nonprofits. And so the states are bringing a case saying, you know, look, we were never even asked if this would impact us, and it absolutely does, because we're trying to keep dark money out, mm-hmm. and if we can't even get this data from the IRS, then there's, it's just become that much more difficult for us to find out who's trying to influence our state elections. So there's several layers of problems here. One, the lack of input that usually if you're going to change a rule in the mm-hmm. federal government, you ask for public comment, you ask for stakeholder input. This was done unilaterally. No input was allowed. Um, and really? it's a big loophole that would allow foreign money as well as just secret dark corporate money that nobody, most people don't want to see in our elections in. Um, it's a wink and a nod to the secret money organizations that we're definitely not going to enforce because we're not going to even know what's in your files. You're just going to have it in your files at your <laughs> secret money organization, not in the IRS's. Which hands. is incredibly troubling on, on many levels. But I was trying to figure out, uh, Akana, what, what difference practically does it make whether it's disclosed to the IRS or not because the IRS as I understand it keeps that information confidential or are you saying that this is information that for example states would be able to get at if they needed it for some reason I mean I I, you know I hate to make dark money even darker but I'm confused on how this would uh, what practical effect this would would have since we don't get to see these disclosures anyway. They're only made to the IRS. My understanding is that the states can have access upon request to that data, but you're correct that under the current um, president, it's not totally clear how easy it would be to access that data. Um, In New Jersey's case, they did actually enact a rule last month requiring tax-exempt organizations to disclose their donors who get more than $5,000, so they would you know, have some of that information in-house for nonprofits in their state. But, of course, as we're seeing, um, money passes from state to state, from even from country to country, most likely. And if we can't see that in the data, then there's no way to track it for these states. So it, it might be great to have a disclosure rule in the state, but it's not going to help you figure out if the money came from another state into your state where that money originally came from. There is not a lot to be optimistic about uh, these days, Akene, it seems. Uh, Should we be optimistic at least about the fight to eventually overturn Citizens United? Are are you optimistic about uh, the direction this is going? I am in the sense that we have HR1. The Democrats prioritized it as the very first thing that they did when they took office, and they're not letting up. They're moving to restore the Voting Rights Act, they're looking at enhancing disclosure through the Disclose Act. Mm-hmm. We expect that they'll be moving the constitutional amendment. And, you know, in 2014, we had a vote on um, in the Senate, and the majority voted in favor of a constitutional amendment as well. So we continue to get lawmakers on the record in support at the state, local, and the federal level. Um, so I do think we're moving forward. Of course, we have to protect our democracy from the existential threat that an unaccountable um, dictator-loving president poses, 
at the same time, we have to show the country the vision that we have as reformers, as pro-democracy people, um, for a clean government that really, truly does represent people, that has public financing in partnership with um, overturning Citizens United so that there is an alternative to the corporate money system. You know, the folks on the right, uh, they stay after their goals for uh, decades. Uh, you know, see the fight against reproductive freedom and women's health care. Is that the kind of fight that we're looking at here? Is it the kind of fight that is needed? Are we looking at a decades-long fight to actually accomplish this? I mean, we have been, we're almost 10 years now past Citizens United. Is that this sort of, uh, is that what this is going to take, this sort of a generational fight over decades to actually make this happen? I hope not, but we are absolutely ready to do that. I have a lot of really wonderful young people working with us on this campaign and they're, I would say the younger generation is more tuned into money and politics, more angry about it, and they really get what it means for equality, for democracy, for having a government that represents them in a really fundamental way. Um, so I am very optimistic that we can wage a long fight if we need to. We've certainly done that in big fights for democracy before, for women's right to vote, um, for freedom for African Americans, and then a meaningful right to vote. Mm -hmm. um, for African-Americans, that's still going on today. We are not going away. This is cyclical. Um, but I'm hoping we can win this sooner rather than later. Um, but it will require everybody's help. Last question. Uh, what do you recommend that citizens do at this point to help move this fight along? What's the best use of, of time and resources, frankly, when there is so much to uh, fight for and against these days? I think you have to pick the fights where your heart is most compelled to act. And I think being a good citizen, knowing who the decision makers are in your area and working across the aisle to get done what you can. Mm -hmm. For example, election security has a lot of legs in states, counties, and the federal government right now. We could win something there and make sure we have a fair vote in order to pass all these reforms that we all care about so much. So that's one place to look. Um, certainly, there's a lot of other important fights just to protect the basic rights of people who live in our country. Um, so I think people have to follow their passion and stick with it and don't get discouraged when you feel alone, but just continue to reach out and build because if we just talk to ourselves and people we agree with already, we won't be able to win the victories we need to. And there's lots of people who really want to help and just need to hear from your listeners about what matters. And I'm uh, actually particularly inspired by something you said uh, early on here, that it was the sort of town-by-town -town effort in New Hampshire that eventually resulted in that... Uh in that state resolution, uh, and so I think people, you know, see the, the the national picture and they lose sight of, yeah, you can fight in your hometown for each of these things, and actually make a difference. Uh, Public Citizen has been making a difference now for many many years. Uh, you can support their work at citizen.org. You can follow them on the twitters at public underscore citizen. Uh, Akene Freechild is the Public Citizen co-director of their Democracy is for People program. And Akene, really appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast. Thank you so much. You bet. All right, let's take a quick break. And uh, I've been trying to get to some uh, viewer mail. We don't have viewers. Listener mail. Thank you. Listener <laughs> mail uh, over the past few days. And today, I'm finally going to do it regarding your favorite topic, impeachment. That's after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> 
Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That seems a little dramatic for our constitutional crisis and impeachment update. Desi Doyle, what do you think? Oh, I don't know. I kind of like it. That was uh, uh, suggested by uh, listener Orchestra Works uh, as uh, when I put out a request for a, uh, an, a, th- a theme song for our <laughs> constitutional crisis update. Uh, so thank you very much for that suggestion. I, I do kind of like it, dramatic, uh, overly dramatic as it may be. Um, we have only time for some quick viewer, listener, I keep saying that, listener feedback uh, on impeachment today in our constitutional crisis and impeachment update. Ms. Tribble over at Daily Coast. Um, in comments says, we are still very naive. The MSM, the mainstream media, is perpetuating the myth that impeachment would make Trump a victim and help him get reelected. There is no evidence for that at all, says Ms. Tribble. In fact, helping people see the lies on Fox can only help this a part of the debate regarding whether Democrats will begin an official impeachment inquiry or not, as so many of them seem to want to in the U.S. House, about 60 of them now on record, and pretty much all of the presidential campaign, 2020 uh, presidential candidates uh, have said they would like to see an official inquiry. We have a constitutional responsibility here, and that's to start this impeachment proceeding. We should begin impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. I think that this president uh, should be impeached. I believe that the Judiciary Committee should begin impeachment inquiries. I believe that the president deserves to be impeached. I feel like we have a moral obligation now uh, to investigate this president. Impeachment proceedings will give us more legal leverage. We need to begin impeachment proceedings and we need a new commander in chief. So with all of those candidates uh, saying, yes, we need to begin an official impeachment inquiry, uh, it's kind of remarkable that U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is still saying, "Uh uh-uh, no way. Well, it's, you know, it's as we've said before, it's been difficult to sort of discern what exactly her her plan is here. Her strategy is here. I I think it's absolutely wrong to say that it would help Trump to impeach him. That makes no sense. Yeah, I agree. And I don't blame the 2020 Democrats because who would you rather run against? A president who has been impeached or a president who hasn't been impeached? Uh, Yeah, well, or Mike Pence, as might be the case, if the impeachment was actually successful. Uh, Our old friend Susan S., uh, otherwise known as For Earth, 
sends email to bradcast at bradblog.com regarding high crimes and misdemeanors. She says, hi, Brad, when I listen to the president speak of high crimes and misdemeanors on your show recently, I realized that he really doesn't understand the meaning of the phrase, let alone the actual specific crimes the phrase implies. And I'm beginning to wonder if a lot of people in Congress also have the wrong interpretation. Trump implied that high crimes means really, really hugely big crimes. And the rest of the phrase means small offenses. Well, it doesn't. She says the term high in that phrase refers to high office, like the president, Congress, or a high judge or a justice. So the phrase actually means crimes and misdemeanors committed by a person or persons holding a high office. I think someone needs to tell Madam Speaker as well, says Susan. She needs hmm. to get on with it. Cheers, Susan, for Earth. Well put. Matt Frillick over at bradblog.com comments to say Ken Starr was able to run amok doing just about anything and everything he could to go after Bill Clinton, yet we hear all kinds of excuses as to why going after Trump is not possible. Partisan party politics is clearly at work. Far much more effort was expended going after Hillary Clinton than will ever be against a real criminal, namely Trump, says Matt. I have officially lost faith that this nation can ever be rescued from the morass and repaired to functionality. Well, do not lose faith, Matt. Uh, we have to keep up the fight. Uh, becoming faithless seems like it has uh, no good cause, no good end. Well, I totally understand that feeling. I, I share that feeling of, wow, this is so depressing and I just really just want to walk away. But don't, please don't. You know, it takes everybody to make this thing work. Because that's exactly what they want you to do. Good point. Finally, uh, Dredd, also commenting at bradblog.com, says lying over 10,000 times is grounds for impeachment in and of itself, many of those lies were while under oath or talking to federal investigators that an impeachment inquiry should begin is a slam dunk. On Morning Joe, Alan Lickman, the professor who has predicted every U.S. presidential election since 1984, indicated that the election will be lost if the impeachment inquiry is not commenced soon. Thank you very much, Dredd. Appreciate that. Appreciate hearing from everyone. You can drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. You can also find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog. My thanks, as usual, to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Akene Freechild of Public Citizen, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That and us here on your public airwaves are all due to those of you who stop by to support our work. We count only on you, not on the fossil fuel industry. That's for sure. Only on listeners to keep us on your public airwaves. So please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Sign up for a subscription or one-time donation. All of it is greatly appreciated. That is it for today. Until we meet again soon, I am Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.